Good morning. My name is Bill Malone. I'm community care pastor here at Mannheim BIC Church. Just to uh, say one thing, this is Memorial Day weekend, and uh, many of us will have tomorrow off. But in between picnics and enjoying the outdoors, um, just take a moment to reflect and be thankful for the freedoms that we do enjoy here in this country. So we're in a series of messages that we've called Out of the Box, Finding Truth in Paradox, where we're looking at seven questions that often come up in regard to our faith. They're questions that are addressed by the Bible, but without any simple answers. Intriguingly to me, this whole issue of just asking questions is one that some churches and some Christians have downplayed, they've discouraged, and I've never understood why, because God has always seemed to encourage it. At least that's the way the Bible speaks about it. I remember many years ago having a conversation with a guy who um, was asking one of these big questions. I don't even remember what it was. Um, And at the end, he said something to this effect. Well, I know I shouldn't be asking this sort of thing. And I don't remember what I said to him, um, but what I've said over the years is, in actual fact, the Bible, um, in the Bible, it's the most spiritual people who would ask questions the hardest questions. And that sort of, most people don't realize it, but that's the way it is. Um, The scriptures are full of that sort of thing. As one of the best examples of it, if you have a concordance in the back of your Bible or you get on a site like biblehub.com and you look up the word why, that's, of course, one of our biggest questions. Why? Why does anything happen? All sorts of things. Um, And what you find is that it is some of the key people in the Bible, Moses, David, Job, but most especially the prophet Jeremiah, who regularly asked that question, why, God, is this happening? And so all this is to say uh, say that the Lord is never put off by any of us asking questions. He's just not. He's big enough to handle it. Um, and, And he encourages honest questions. And now the thing that goes with it and this is the part sometimes we don't always like, is we have to be ready for the answers, what God might say to us, or sometimes what he might not say to us in answer. So today's question. Now, this is one, boy, this is a tough one. We're dealing with probably one of the most widespread questions that that any of us face. Why does the church so often fall short of what it's called to be? If you haven't asked it yet, You will at some point, right? Or some version of this kind of question. I don't know many people who haven't asked it. When churches and individual believers here in this country and around the world too often fall short, that's just reality. As we know, a lot of people simply get put off going to church just because of this kind of thing. They've been hurt. They've been disappointed for some some issue, something that's gone on. they have felt like the church has fallen short, and believers have. Now, sometimes it comes down to a specific incident where somebody was deeply hurt by a church or by what someone said. And it's more often than the, um, you know, the unintentionally dumb things that people say, you know? Sometimes we just come out with the dumbest things, and it's unintentional. That's not what I'm talking about here, right? This is something that is, is pretty serious, and it really does put us off. It can involve minor issues that some people and denominations major on. 
that really aren't that important. Sometimes it's politicized atmosphere that Christians have made without realizing that there really is scope for a variety of views with our politics. Recently, the scandals surrounding abuse in far too many churches have rocked many people to the core, and you all know that. You watch the news, you have friends, you know this kind of thing very deeply. Even the book that this series is based on, it was published in 2014 in in the chapter that I'm building off of. They quote a pastor who has since since then resigned in disgrace because of of some issues that came up of, of sexuality in some way. Now, I can go on and on. The thing is, the reality is, most of us will have stories to tell along this line. And I have to tell you, this is a message I'd rather not be given, right? I drew the short straw here. Um, I would, there are some tough questions in here. I would have much rather handled some of those. Um, and here's why. More than anything else, addressing this question is an acknowledgement of how much churches and individuals, individual believers fall short. And as a pastor, it's difficult to admit that. And yet, and here's the thing, this is what what makes me okay with doing this. It's an absolute necessity to address this kind of thing. We can't just brush it under the carpet. We have to address it. It's there. It's in the Bible, but it's also there in life and what we deal with. I also have to say that I've been on both sides of this one. Sometimes I've been the unwilling recipient of what churches have decided And it was very, very painful. But I've also been on the side where I've done some things that some people found inconsistent, and I've had to go back later and apologize for it. So all that to say, I'm not standing here as somebody who doesn't get it. Um, I get this one. Um, This is very personal for me um, as well. So why does the church so often fall short of what it's called to be? Well, at one level we could answer, and and this really is is a, a good answer here, That is because people or churches are made up of people who sin, right? Correct answer. Um, But it doesn't let us off the hook. The standards that God has called us to, to follow as individuals and as churches, are still there, even though we still sin. So it doesn't let us off the hook. Now, again, it's still the, the case. Church is made up of people who sin, Um, But it it goes much further than that. So we're going to attempt an honest look at it, looking at a few passages from the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians. So if you have your Bible or device, um, you can start taking a look there. Now, we're calling this the Corinthian paradox because the Christian church in the Greek city of Corinth, which, by the way, is still in existence. It's about 50 miles west of Athens. It received a letter from the apostle known as Paul, taking them to task for the many inconsistencies between what they believed and the way they were living. The disconnect in that ancient church is probably the most pronounced that you'd find anywhere in the Bible. So if nothing else, here's one thing we can say, that this problem has existed for as long as the Christian church has existed. It's not a contemporary problem. In fact, this first letter to the Corinthians probably wouldn't exist if it wasn't for all the problems they had. And that's not justifying the problems or saying they're okay. It's just this is the reality. Um, If they hadn't gone through so many issues, one after the other, we probably wouldn't have this book. 
So one example, right at the start, right? So if you've got your Bibles ready, we're going to have from chapter 1, it will be on the screen as well, starting at verse 4. So chapter 1, starting at verse 4. In his typical fashion, Paul started off with the positive qualities in the church before addressing the problems. So here's how it reads. I always thank my God for, the, for you and for the gracious gifts he has given you, now that you belong to Christ Jesus. Through him, God has enriched your church in every way, with all of your eloquent words and all of your knowledge. This confirms that what I told you about Christ is true. Now you have every spiritual gift you need as you eagerly wait for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will keep you strong to the end so that you will be free from all blame on the day when our Lord Jesus Christ returns. God will do this, for he is faithful to do what he says, and he has invited you into partnership with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And then here's where, after the positive affirmations, he starts to address the problems. Verse 10. I appeal to you, dear brothers and sisters, by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ, to live in harmony with each other, let there, no be, let there be no divisions in the church. Rather, be of one mind, united in thought and purpose. For some members of Chloe's household have told me about your quarrels. Here it is, right? I heard about this. They've told me about your quarrels, my dear brothers and sisters. Some of you are saying, I am a follower of Paul. Others are saying, I follow Apollos, or I follow Peter. Or I follow only Christ, the spiritual ones, right? I follow only Christ. They were going through a serious problem of divisiveness over that, their leaders. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> Do we go through that still? Uh, yeah. Um, now, here's the thing. In 1 Corinthians, it took Paul almost four entire chapters to deal with this problem of the divisiveness that was going on over their leadership. He wrote about the cross the symbol of Jesus' death, that it showed up human folly with God's wisdom. Talked about God's message of the cross, that it came only as a demonstration of the Spirit. He mentioned that each leader has their own place in God's plan, and then that they were all servants of God anyway. And with a touch of sarcasm mixed in, and, and sometimes we think, oh, why would the Bible have sarcasm? Oh, it does. Um, if you read something, you think, that sounds a little sort of sarcastic. It probably is, right? It's, it's there. So, and Paul didn't hold off doing that. His final appeal to him was basically this. Why in the world would you split yourselves over your leaders? Why would you bother doing that? Dumb. You know, you don't need to do that. We're all on the same, the same team. Um, before God, we just have different places, but of course, we still fall into the same trap as they do. And um, again, this is just how things went. So to repeat what I said earlier, this is a biblical example of churches being made up of people who sin, and yet the standards that God has set for the church wouldn't let, him, wouldn't let them get off the hook that easily. It's, it's not just to say, yeah, well, we mess up. It, God will take care of it. He'll forgive us. Well, nah, it, it just isn't that, that simple. Now, before we go any further, we're going to stop and watch a video from what's called the Bible Project. You'll, you, those of you who have been around for a while, you might recognize this. We've shown them before when we've done an overview of a book of the Bible. And because, in a sense, that's what we're doing today, um, we've edited down part of it. Um, 
we're looking at the beginning of 1 Corinthians and at the end. And so that's what we're going to watch um, with this video from the Bible Project. Watch on the screens with us. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, written to a church community that Paul knew really well. Corinth was a major port city in the ancient world and had lots of temples to Greek and Roman gods. It was a big economic center. And so Paul strategically came here as a missionary. He spent a year and a half there getting to know people, talking to them about Jesus. And a whole bunch of people became followers of Jesus and formed a church community. You can read about all of this in Acts chapter 18. So after a while, Paul moved on to start churches in other cities, and he started getting reports that things were not going well at all back at the church in Corinth. It was plagued by all kinds of problems, and that's why he wrote this letter. It's broken up into five main parts, along with a final greeting. And these five sections correspond to five main problems that Paul is addressing. And so the letter reads like a collection of short essays on different topics, but there are these core ideas that unite all of the pieces together. So here's what he does in each section. He describes the problem, but then he always responds to that problem with some part of the story of the gospel, which is the good news about Jesus. And he shows how they're actually not living out what they say they believe. And so this letter is all about learning to think about every area of life through the lens of the gospel. So let's dive in and see how he does it. In chapters 1 through 4, the problem is that there are these divisions in the church. There are some other teachers who had come through town since Paul left, a guy named Apollos and then Peter, and people had picked their favorite teacher and then became groupies around that leader and then started to talk bad and disrespect people who favored another leader or teacher. And so Paul, his response to this is kind of sarcastic and sharp. He says, you have to be kidding me, right? The church is not a popularity contest. The church is a community of people who are centered around Jesus, Its leaders and its teachers are simply servants of Jesus. So while you might prefer one leader more than another, it's not worth dividing over and certainly not speaking poorly about each other. The center of the church is Jesus and the good news about who he is and what he's done. The last problem Paul addresses is the issue of Jesus' resurrection and the future hope of Jesus' followers. There were some people in the church who are saying that the idea of resurrection is ridiculous and doesn't really matter to being a Christian. And Paul reacts to this big time. He begins by saying that the resurrection is an indispensable part of the gospel. We believe in it because of the hundreds of eyewitnesses that saw Jesus alive in a physical body after being publicly executed by the Romans. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, Paul says, then his death was meaningless. We are all still lost in our sin and selfishness. We should just stop being Christians. Paul then shows in detail how the resurrection was Jesus' victory over death and evil, how it's a source of life and power for us now in the present, and how it's a promise of future hope for the whole world. It's because of the resurrection that we have a reason to be unified around Jesus, It's the reason we have motivation for sexual integrity. It's the source of power for loving other people more than ourselves. And ultimately, it's our hope for victory over death. And so, Paul concludes, we do believe Jesus was raised from the dead, which means this. The gospel is not just moral advice or a recipe for private spirituality. It's an announcement about Jesus that opens up a whole new reality. And that's what 1 Corinthians is all about, seeing every part of life through the lens of that gospel.
Paul's first lesson. Aren't these helpful? Boy, I, I just love watching these little short pieces. That it just puts things together so well. So coming back to this painful topic of why churches fall short of what they're called to be, the way the Bible answers is summed up well in the video. Again, identifying the problem, telling them what to do, sometimes strongly and sarcastically just knock it off. Um, and then God's viewpoint is presented with some aspect of the gospel to address what's behind it. Now, today's question is posed in the form of a why question, but I do want to touch on the how. How do we handle the disappointments that do come up when churches fall short? From the perspective of someone who's been disappointed or hurt, which is all of us sitting in this room at some point, and if you haven't yet, it's coming, um, first thing to say, forgive the person regardless if they acknowledge it or not. And this is probably one of the hardest things to do, especially if they don't acknowledge it. But forgiveness is in the Bible really for this reason, that we hurt each other sometimes. Second, distinguish between, between an honest disagreement that's not a matter of right or wrong and actions or words that are deliberate. Um, sometimes we just have to agree to disagree, and, and that's okay. Um, and, and that's just where we have to leave it. Distinguish between a comment that's inadvertently stupid or ignorant. Boy, and there's plenty of those. And one that's intentionally hurtful. And those are the hardest ones, those intentionally hurtful ones. Um, those are, are just very difficult to, to deal with. And it takes a long time and, uh, just to heal from some of that. And that's where we need each other in, in that process and looking to God to, to bring that healing. And with some of the less important issues, develop a little thicker skin, right? Sometimes we get our nose out of joint for things we don't need to. Sometimes we do, right? I'm not downplaying the importance of some things, but sometimes we, we just need to have a little thicker skin. Now, those of us, all of us, again, at some point or the other, who have disappointed or hurt others, acknowledge what you've done. Acknowledge it and make things right as much as possible. This is maybe the hardest one. Sometimes we don't see it. Um, and just to mention one topic that seems to, to happen that people get hurt over, and that's gossip or just simply talking too much. Boy, the, the people that really struggle with it don't always see it. At least that's been my observation. But regardless of what it is, we need to own what's gone on and try to make things right as much as we can. Determine for yourself whether what you said or did was intentional or not, right? Just realize that sometimes we, we just come out with things that we don't always really intend the way they were taken. Try to put yourself in the other person's shoes to understand things from their perspective. This is really critical, um, that, that we just try to understand how what we said or did came across. Even if what hurt someone else was or what someone else said was unintentional, it still needs to be owned and made right. A prime example, right? If a comment is made glibly to a couple that is ex experiencing infertility or they've had a loss through miscarriage, right? It can be done just unintentionally, and yet it can be deeply hurtful. That's the kind of thing of what I'm saying here, right? Put yourself in the other person's shoes. What are, what, how are they responding to this? Um, again, you may have just made a comment in passing and not realized it, um, but we need, to, we need to address that for ourselves. And one last thing. If you're in a position of leadership, 
regardless of whether it's at work, whether it's in a church, in all sorts of organizations, understand that you can't please everyone and that many decisions will leave someone disappointed, right? You can't please everyone. So these are just some of the things of, of dealing with it. There are probably many more things that could be said, but hopefully this can give some direction with this thorny and difficult issue. Now, one final thought in addressing this question. It comes from the big picture of the book of 1 Corinthians, and this is where we're going to hit a little bit of the first, uh, the opening part, and then touch on the end. It starts, the book of 1 Corinthians starts with a focus on the cross of Jesus, and it ends with a focus on his resurrection, with this phrase that some people call living in the not yet. And here's what I mean by this. Where this comes together is that the effects of Jesus' death and resurrection are very real for us right now. They are. There, there are many effects that are very real. But its effects, its full effects, will only be seen in the future when the kingdom of God comes fully. That's the yet. That's still to come. And so we live in this not yet where there are some things that we do get to see and experience. We put our faith in Jesus, but we live here in this not yet where there's sin that we're dealing with. We experience love. We experience forgiveness. We experience power. But at the same time, we know firsthand the effects of our sinfulness on ourselves and what's, what's happened with other people and what it's done to us, how it's made us feel, what we've gone through. And so this is the living in the not yet. Now, chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians speaks of Jesus' death by crucifixion and how God used something so repulsive to accomplish something so amazingly gracious that sinful people could find hope in this life by putting their faith in this man. A couple of statements made in that chapter. The message of the cross is the very power of God. So what Jesus went through is God's power that can be real for us. And Christ through his death, is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And that message was one that the church, that church and for all Christian churches still take on today. The cross of Jesus is central to our faith. And then chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians spends a lot of time working through the resurrection of Jesus. Because it was a historic reality, it actually did happen. It would have effects for both now and the future for people who put their faith in him. And a couple of statements from that chapter. Christ has, in fact, been raised from the dead. And Christ was raised first, but then all who belong to him will be raised when he comes back. And the intention with Jesus' resurrection is that his coming back to life was the first of a later harvest that includes everyone who puts their faith in him. Our bodies will likewise be resurrected, right? An amazing sort of thing to think about. These bodies that go through all sorts of things, they'll be raised to life. Not yet, right? That's still coming. Um, And we don't know when, but when the kingdom comes fully. Doesn't say a lot about what those bodies will be like. Other than that, they'll still be physical, but with other qualities than what we experience now. So again, the point is that we aren't there yet. We're living in this time when we get a taste of, of the effects of Jesus' death and resurrection. And that taster is significant, right? It really is significant. 
but we're still hindered by the effects of sin all around us. And yet it's in the messiness of living in this not yet that we're still called to follow God's high calling as his people. As just one example in 1 Corinthians, that calling is to demonstrate love in all sorts of situations in all, with all sorts of people. We call 1 Corinthians 13 the love chapter. It's often read at weddings. I'm doing two weddings in the next three weeks, I think it is. Um, I love doing weddings, and I love reading this chapter. But you know the thing is about 1 Corinthians 13? It's smack in the middle of what in the video was called the mess of the gatherings, the, the worship times that the Corinthian people were going through, where they were dealing with selfishness, things like people eating and not waiting for other people. They were not or they were trying to outdo each other with tongues and prophecy. And you know what they were told in that amazing passage? Love is patient. Love is kind. Love looks out for the other person. It's not self-seeking. And love never fails. So in the middle of all the, the mess that was going on, they were still called to follow love, God's pattern of love just like we are. We're not let off the hook with the messiness of life and the messiness of our sin. It's still there. And if they needed a strong dose of what love looks like, how much more do we? Just that reminder for us of what love looks like, where we need to make our life together, our relationships and our care for each other, driven by love, expressing it in itself in all sorts of ways. And this is why, in this time of not yet, that we pray for each other about illnesses. See, in the yet to come, we won't deal with illnesses. We won't have to pray for these things. This is what we deal with now. So we pray for each other that way. The hard part is sometimes our prayers don't get answered the way we want. Right? This is some of the struggle. This is why we have groups like Supporting Families Dealing with a Disability. In this world, these things happen. Why we have classes for parents and grandparents taking a break today, but we're, we're trying to see what does it look like as parents and grandparents to see our kids and our grandkids grow up to follow the Lord in a world that doesn't offer them a whole lot of encouragement, but that's what we want to see. This is why small groups meet, to read the Bible together, to pray for each other with all the different things that we deal with. It's also why, with the large issue of abuse, that we can't think it won't happen to us. And we need to encourage churches and organizations to keep kids safe and deal honestly with abuse that has taken place. So where do we go with this not very positive message and yet very necessary message? I want to finish by simply re by repeating this basic pattern that Paul the Apostle gave in 1 Corinthians. So if you're doing something and there's a disconnect between what you believe and what you've said or done, plain and simple, stop, right? If this is something going on, this is what God would say. Just stop. No need to keep doing it, right? Second thing, own up to what you're doing. Own it. Don't try and deflect. Don't try and rationalize things. Own it and make things right as much as you can. And then let the Spirit of God and the message of the cross and the resurrection 
guide and empower you to more fully follow him. See, what we're after is consistency, a connection that is seen and experienced by people around us. This is what we're after, and this is what God has called us to do. So will you pray with me as as we wind things down? Lord, we all wrestle with this one. Um, We wish it wasn't this way. We wish we were in that yet-to-come time when all the struggles of this life and the, the physical issues were gone. But we're still here. We're still wrestling with this, this, these sort of things. And we still get hurt. And the world looks at us and doesn't like what they see. And Lord, we confess this. We confess where we have fallen short of what you want. And Lord, may we simply follow you that by the Spirit of God and the message of the cross and resurrection, you'll guide us to more, just be more consistent in living for you. We thank you that you do this. And Lord, we ask that you will. In Jesus' name, amen.